One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not a Diving podcast. Right, last week on the show, I mentioned that we were going to be announcing a whole bunch of stuff relating to the 20th birthday of Hot Flush Recordings. That is a label that I founded in 2003, hence the 20th birthday thing. So, yeah, that announcement came out on Friday along with a collaborative single which I made with last week's guest on the show Distance so that's out now get that on any platform you desire hf20.news/opposites is the site to hit for all the info opposites being the name of the tune and Apart from that, we have a whole load of releases coming. So this Friday, we'll be dropping the first of four mixes, like DJ mixes, that I have recorded covering different like stylistic angles of the label's output over the course of 20 years. So the first mix is entitled Hot Flush Origins, which will be, yeah, that's kind of fairly obvious what that's going to be. So look out for that on Friday on all platforms again can stream that wherever you usually stream your music including soundclouds you can get it off bandcamp everywhere basically so that's the next thing two weeks after that will be another single a week after that will be another mix and then it carries on essentially like that for a couple of months i guess thinking about it now yeah there's a four mixes and uh, five singles, I believe it is, to get through. So, yeah, just loads of stuff. And we will be announcing some shows this week too. I mean, there's going to be shows going on all over the world, really all year. But the first few we're going to announce in a chunk. Uh, We're just putting the finishing touches as we speak to those. So there will be an announcement this week. But fear not, if your city isn't included, like I said, there will be more going on basically for the duration of 2023 
So yeah, lots to look forward to. It's going to be some fun nights, 100%. Lots and lots of fun nights going on. And yeah, I think we will be enjoying ourselves collectively. If you're a Patreon subscriber, then you are guaranteed entry, by the way, on the guest list to any and all of those shows. So if you haven't signed up for the Patreon, patreon.com slash official. Now's the time to do so. And like I said, actually, hf20.news is the general site. I mean, it goes to hotwashcorners.com, but just to keep it short and snappy, hf20.news for all updates and info on the Hot Flush 20 celebrations, which will be going on, as I said, all year. Right, okay, this week's guest doesn't have much to do with that, having done last week's guest before the announcement, which was directly related to the celebrations. This week's guest does not have anything directly related to Hot Flush, but that's cool, that's fine, because it's Eric Cloutier, who is a bit of an underground hero, I think, Amazing DJ, Detroit native, now lives in Berlin, along with many other people, but via New York. So he's a big part of the Bunker Party for a good few years and retains some ties there, as we hear during the conversation. He's a great producer and just a guy of thoughtful opinions, really. So someone who I wanted to have on for a while, and I'm glad that it's finally happened. This is someone who I know socially, which does change the cadence slightly of the conversation. But like, I don't think it's good or bad, really. It's just a little bit different when I know the person well who comes on the show. But this is one of those, just to give you a nudge on that up front. It's probably a bit more laughing and a bit more, I don't know, just sociability, if that's a word, to these episodes. But yeah, this is a good conversation anyway. We get in some meaty topics. We don't duck anything. And yeah, some good solid discussion has had across a range of issues really and uh, i think you're going to enjoy it as much as i enjoyed having the conversation so before we get going a reminder that if you're not going to do the patreon thing that's totally fine leave us a review or a rating wherever you listen to this podcast follow the spotify playlist which includes much of the music we talk about on the show and join us in the discords there's a private area for patreon members but the discord is generally open for everyone so hotflushrecordings.com slash discord you will find the invite to join that server and it's a vibrant community of people in there now so yeah we'd like to see you there right i'm going to stop prattling on without further delay here is eric cloutier Eric Cloutier, welcome to the show. How are you doing, sir? I'm pretty good. How are you? Thank you for having me. You're welcome. It's been a while. It has been a while. You've been on the list of guests for a while, so it's nice to finally have you here. At least I made the list. (laughs) I mean, there are are people who are not on the list. That's true. We won't mention who those people are, but I mean, they're not on the list for a reason. But you were on the list for a reason, so let's be positive. Basically, it's going to be incumbent upon us during this episode to be positive which in our social conversations, it's, it should be said that we are not always in our outlook. I've noticed though, the conversations we've had over the years socially. Sometimes veer into the um, old man yells at cloud. Kind of, <laughs> okay, uh, yeah, so we're going to try not to do that today. We're really going to try and avoid that. So in that spirit, right? So this is my first question. I occasionally prepare a first question. I don't do it every time, but this time I I have done it. And my first question is, 
what are the best things that have happened to the dance scene since 2020? Hmm. Best things that... You know what? I feel like, honestly, it made people uh, a bit more appreciative of what they have in this whole scene. I know I, for one, kind of, you know, when the pandemic hit, you kind of wondered if there was ever going to be a scene ever again. Like, do I need to learn a new trade? Do I need to find a new job? So I think a lot of people um, really became more appreciative of even getting one gig. Uh, it it, it kind of leveled the playing field a little bit, I think, with people's egos. Not entirely, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> um, but it did kind of, you know... It allowed the little guy to be as seen as the A-lister in some sense. I mean, look at things like horror radio. They weren't really booking the biggest names on the planet. They were booking just anybody. And it kind of gave the platform, it reversed the platform. So I think it kind of gave people a bit more positive spin on things, despite the situation. But I think a lot of people just took more chances when it came to playing. I think there was a bit more of an open-ended, uh, let's just experiment. Like, what do I got to lose? The world might end tomorrow, so why don't I just start playing, literally throwing every dart at the board all at one time. Again, not to say that's the greatest thing on the planet, but it, it did <laughs> you know, kind of open up opportunities in the musical spectrum, I think, a little bit. Yeah, and with with mixed results, right? I think it's fair to say. Oh, very, very, very mixed results. Yeah. I mean, because that's interesting. Because I hadn't thought about it like that. So, so do you think that's where the um, the more extreme ends of music, which are now kind of rearing their ugly heads in clubs? Do you reckon is is that sort of attitude where that ultimately came from? Do you think? Well, I've got mixed feelings about that as well because yes, I think that's kind of why we ended up with opening DJs playing 145 beats per minute because they just didn't have a frame of reference as to where, how this is supposed to be done. But also, again, in that it's my time, fuck you, I'm just going to do what I want to do mentality. Yeah, that's kind of where we got to the musical position that we're in, I would say. But... Yeah, it's there's I hmm. yeah, that's a tough one because I think people were just ready for something fresh. No, you know, they didn't want to come back out of lockdown and go right back into the exact same thing because then it would have it kind of had a Groundhog's Day vibe to it as much as the pandemic felt like Groundhog's Day. Um, <laughs> you know, they just didn't want to walk right back into a club and it just felt like nothing ever changed. So I think the shakeup was really kind of necessary in a weird way. Have you noticed, I mean, you, you live in Berlin, but you're via Detroit and also via New York. You've been living in Berlin for a good few years now. So did you notice after the reopening uh, and stepping out into clubs, like both as you know, someone who goes out and listens to music and also someone who's playing out, like, I mean, what were the, I mean, other than obviously the, the kind of musical changes that we that you just touched upon, like, were there other noticeable changes in Berlin clubs after that reopening? Yeah, it's unfortunate to say, but the drug situation in clubs became um, kind of alarming and depressing. Uh, just 
yeah, it kind of had the zombie vibe to it. Uh, I would say that people got a bit too comfortable being at home and partying and watching stuff as a live stream. And they've just kind of assumed that that's what's supposed to happen when you go out. Uh, you know, there's there's an inbuilt, you know, not to say that nobody knows this, but everybody knows that there's drugs in clubs. But there's an inbuilt kind of pause when you have to wait in a toilet queue for 20 minutes before you consume what you want to consume. And I think people, people just at home just went directly from thought to action. And they've kind of just hit it a bit too hard in the clubs. And there was just a sloppiness to it. And it just felt like, you know, they, there was just like a dirtiness to it when it reopened. It felt in a weird way, like even though you were in a legal venue, everything was illegal. I felt like I was back in a warehouse in Detroit where I had to like break in and trade a roll of toilet paper for entry or for the map point, <laughs> you know, like this kind of thing. Like, it just felt like, wait a second, I paid 25 euro to get into this place. It should be safe and, and clean. But it's like, wow, this is kind of like gnarly. It kind of felt a little bit gnarly in the clubs. Right. That's interesting. I mean, you know, I guess the music, the changes in the music, which we've talked about on the show quite, quite a bit in the sense that it's, uh, certainly in in some quarters, certainly in techno, it's all got pretty hard, pretty fast, pretty silly in some uh, respects and in some quarters. So is that a direct result of, because like, I, th- I think that trend started before the pandemic, but I mean, I think it was just the, like the flames of it were just fanned by, like you said, people sitting indoors and watching live streams. And what what, what works on a live stream it's not directly analogous to a to a small, particularly a small club, right? I think it's probably more analogous to, to what might work on a on a big festival stage, just because of like you know you're looking for a bit like a big audience as possible online. Yeah, it felt. I mean, things got a bit performative. You, you know, cameras on you. You got one hour. This is your time to shine. Make a, make it memorable. Um, you know, there's no. Yeah, I mean that's a festival set, right? Exactly. That's, that's that's exactly we're it. all we're at a million festival sets now. <laughs> But like, and then add something ridiculous that you're doing or dressing up or whatever um, for the for the audience. Uh, so yeah, that. But you, yeah, no. I think the sound wise was starting to creep up before the pandemic, but it became amplified during because again, everybody was they wanted their 15 minutes or 60 minutes of fame, I should say, or 15 seconds afterwards. Yeah, because that's all you could fit in the loop of a GIF or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, okay, so let's let's talk about this musical trend for a moment then, because I mean, it has been around before. Like hard techno has existed before, and dumb sounding hard house that is basically techno has certainly existed before. I mean, I remember the hard house trend of the late nineties. Oh my god, that music was fucking terrible. Uh, <laughs> it yes. really was. Yes. So, tell me about how you see the return of this stuff and is there any sort of positive spin you can put on put on it at all so what i have lovingly been referring to as deep gabber um <laughs> for most of this time um it's the only way i can really explain it simply uh is that the way i looked at it at first you know of course uh, there's just pure hatred for it because it's like what is happening you know like it's i felt like not only going back in time, but it was just like, are we really kind of like dumbing it down and looking for the bottom of the barrel, like kind of crap? 
Um, but I think what it really happened is that somewhere in the last five, six years, there was a really hard generational shift. And the only way to like really kind of equate it is that there was no difference in the sense of when our you know, grandparents who listened to jazz and their children, our parents started listening to rock and roll. They kind of just yelled at, like, you can't listen to that. That's shit. That's not how you play the guitar. Like, what do you kids know? Which only drives the kids further into that realm. So we hit a point where, you know, we're now, if you think about it, electronic music is, what, 35, 40-something years of being a successful business operation uh, with, like, actual, like, charts and these kind of things. So the last thing they want is dad telling them what to listen to. So the hardest shift you can make is basically the exact opposite. So if you still want to do electronic music and everybody's telling you that you should listen to this DJ kicks CD or this, you know, this album or this record, of course, you're going to go to the complete other side of the record store. And what just happens to be over there is the like Psytrance and hard house and these kind of things or like the dollar bin, because if you only have a certain amount of money, you go on Discogs or Hardwax or whatever, you can buy two records, three records for 40 euro, or you can go to the dollar bin and buy 40 and sure, they're not spectacular, but you're going to make them work when you go home and you're going to figure out how to DJ and like that's just becomes your thing. And you start digging and finding the weird because you want to write your own narrative and your own chapter of this, this you know, story of electronic music. They're, they're now on book two. You know, like we've book one has been written and that's that's where our generation starts to kind of like fade out and they're they're doing their own thing. This is the next narrative. And that's we don't agree with it, but take it or leave it. <laughs> they're they're doing their thing and they should be proud of it. I'm not sure if they should be proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't I didn't say that they're going to be proud of it in 10 years, but <laughs> they're definitely going to be they, they should be happy with that. They've created their own counterculture i'll take that back i i I hear what you're saying um i mean i I don't think um i'm not sure if this is book two i think maybe this is book three or four but but yeah yeah yeah. broadly i i definitely agree with that and i think particularly in fact like in my conversation last week or in fact two weeks ago uh with manpower he was describing how his 13 or 12 or 13 year old daughter was just getting into dance music now and like how relieved he was that she's into good stuff you know and like what a challenge it is I guess as a parent I mean I haven't got kids but like I imagine like the challenge as a parent is to allow your kids to discover their own stuff because in in the knowledge that anything you try and ram down their throat is going to be you know met with resistance by your average teenager it certainly I said it would certainly would have been like that as a teenager, and I, I certainly was like that as a teenager. I, I also, I also think there's a lot to be said about the goldfish-like attention span that most people have these days. Where the second something becomes cool, it's already five steps behind the next thing, and it's this constant reinvention that we will never be able to comprehend and keep up with. But there's people that grew up not even understanding there was phones before iPhones that like, they're just like, they can move at lightning speed and they are constantly evolving and changing. And it's just like, yo, (laughs) this is, 
well beyond my spectrum of, of comprehension. So yeah, I mean, I guess like I mean that that's that's definitely an argument that is put forward a lot, and it's, there's definitely a lot of truth to it. I mean, like, I, I guess the counter to that is during the nineties and during that kind of early period of like the the, the first boom, should we say of of dance music, there was fucking loads of new stuff popping up all the time. Like there were loads of new styles that, you know, it was like a jungle and garage and different like genres of techno. And like within a really short space of time, like maybe five years, you saw like the birth of all these different genres. And I think maybe to a sort of older music listener then, that must have been bewildering. Like, what the fuck is going on, right? And I think like the um, I mean, the attention span, attention span thing that you're referring to. I mean, I think is sort of relates to the way music is consumed online, and and particularly with TikTok and Instagram stories, like that being the bleeding edge of that whole thing. Um, I think particularly TikTok and the way that TikTok has just sort of like taken over music discovery now in a weird kind of a. Well, in a quite sinister it's, way, it's, actually. There, there was actually some article. I can't remember where I saw it, but I, I'll dig it up and find it. But there was an article talking about how TikTok is actually one of the quickest ways for record labels to find like a new star, and they will they will have a hit if you want to air quote if you can see my air quotes on TikTok, and they will give them a record contract expecting them to write twelve more songs, and they basically go from millionaire to completely broke within the span of like 30 days because yeah, yeah. they just that's not their that's not their thing well it's not how it they, works they're meant to make one yeah hit. It's, it's it's just it's, well it's, it's also that it's but. basically i mean major labels are still laboring under the kind of previous business model you know and the way influencer infrastructure i guess or ecosystem or whatever it is like the way it works is just it's just not that predictable you know like there are people who just fluke it to the top and are never able to replicate that, right? And in, in, in the same way, there's always been, I guess, one-hit wonders in music, right? There's, that's always been a thing. But I guess the difference is, like, you know, in the previous, and when I say the previous, I'm really talking about, like, the pre-Napster era. You know, you had big labels, you know, pouring development money into acts and allowing them to fail with their first album like album not just first track failing with their first album and still letting them do the second and the third one uh until they get it right but now like you say you know the the kind of the kind of arms race to extract value out of music where music is seemingly less and less valuable in society like that's reflected in the music industry, I think, in the way that major labels are run. Does that make sense? Well, we're yeah, yeah, we're we're almost in a land of um, nothing is supposed to land last in perpetuity. It's it's just a million jingles, if you think about it. Like they're they're television commercial jingles that they want thirty second hot stuff that will get stuck in your head, and you'll remember when you go to the grocery store and. The, and by that I mean the record store, and hope to God that like you'll buy it. But yeah, it's everything's forgettable and disposable. And how many copycats instantly come out from one popular track? And then you know it's like, well, that was fun <laughs> for, for about 48, 48 hours. So yeah, there's no there's no real originality, and there's no staying power. There's nothing memorable about most of the music, unfortunately. I mean, yes, basically. Unfortunately, right. So, okay, right. So we're trying to stay positive here, though. So let's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. What was that thing? Sorry, sorry. <laughs> um, okay, so 
Previously on the show, I've really tried to avoid talking about the pandemic at a sort of general level. But you actually did something quite cool and interesting with your time during the pandemic. And I want to talk about that, which was your arsonist and the architect project, which was a 10 part, basically mix series, 20 hours of audio. So do you want to tell us all about that? Tell us about how you came to the conclusion to doing it um, in the first place. The concept of it was that, you know, during, again, kind of circling back that during the pandemic, it was kind of just like, there's this, you know, pre-pandemic, there's a feedback loop. You know, you, you, you go out and play on a weekend, which means you come home and you kind of are inspired. So you shop for music or you make music and that you that want to perform the next weekend. And this infinite loop kind of happens ideally every weekend. But then when you remove two of those factors, it becomes like, why and what am I doing this for? So I kind of was sitting there you know, wondering about life and if, again, if this was ever going to be a career again, staring at my walls of vinyl and going, what I think I want to do is I want to literally almost go through and touch every single one of my records and listen to them and kind of just reconnect physically with my collection. And then in doing that, I had reminded myself that I've been talking about doing it for years, uh, doing like a multiple part series of my collection that were in a sense themed uh, based on certain sections of my collection in my wall. And I just decided, you know what, now's the perfect opportunity because I have nothing else to do. So I really started digging in and I ended up coming with up with 10 different, I don't want to say genres, but themes or emotions that I wanted to portray or times of nights or times of style or times of um, a party that I wanted to like really just recreate. So I came up with this series um, to not only really reconnect with my vinyl collection, which is what I'm more most comfortable playing, but also just to like really kind of tell 10 different stories about, you know, different eras or different parts of my collection and just really bring life and bring kind of some sort of optimism back into the whole thing and allow me to feel comfortable that like when it does come time to come back out and play i haven't been sitting twiddling my thumbs for two years and i feel like i don't know what to do anymore um but yeah it was just really it was meant to just kind of um yeah reignite like my love for electronic music because a lot of it had been you know most people do they start playing in the digital realm and I forgot that I have all these physical things. And I, and I wanted to just like really go back and explore everything that was on my shelves. And, you know, it's because you spend a lot of time and money on these things. And they take up a lot of space in your flat. So um, I just, you know, I just wanted to like really kind of feel it again. Literally feel the music again. How many records have you got roughly in your collection? Um, I think I'm up, uh, it's, a, it's almost around 4,000. Which a lot of people assume that I have considerably more. Uh, but I am the type. I mean, Four thousand is a lot. It is a lot. I think people routinely like lie about the size of their record collections. I think no, they have a thousand because they just can't carry it all up one flight of stairs. No, I've, I have. It's like thirty seven hundred, thirty seven, uh, three thousand seven hundred, something like there. And I, and it's because I'm of the type that like if I go through and I find something that's like I'm not really playing it anymore or I don't really appreciate it or like it, I have no problem selling it because if that gives me. 10 euro that allows me to go buy something new to replace it 
I've made somebody else happy, but I'm also making myself happy. So I'm, I've kind of hit this like critical mass where there's nothing on my shelves that I don't want or won't play. So I'm now at an actual like I'm just increasing as opposed to kind of circling the drain and staying at the same number. So like if I would buy 10, I would sell 10, you know, but now I'm kind of like uh, I'm just I'm just I'm just collecting yeah. at this point. And can you be a bit more specific about how you put together each of these 10 episodes or 10 mixes? I mean, you, you talked a little bit about, you know, eras and moods and, you know, the different kind of inputs to it. But like how much of it was like how much commonality was there between each each one? And how did you think about putting each one together? Um, so when I originally was coming up with this concept, God, I want to say maybe like eight or nine years ago. It's before I moved to Berlin, I wanted to do this. And that was 10 years ago almost at this point. Um, I had I had a, a text document on my an old, old hard drive that I had written down some like notes. And one of the main ones is that, you know, I'm known for playing dub techno. So I was like, I have to do a dub techno mix again. That's easy one. But then I was like, you know, I want to do a Detroit mix um, because, you know, that's where I'm from. But then I want to do something that's very like psychedelic and trippy. I still have like this, you know, dare I use the word progressive kind of side that I like to go into. (laughs) (laughs) I know these are all like, you know, taboo words, Uh, tribal, you know, like the really tribally 90s kind of hard groove. Um, You know, the the, the best mix I've ever heard in my entire life is still Richie Hot and Dex Effects and 909 and like that kind of thing. Oh, 100%. You know, I will co-sign. I mean, it is it is hands down one of the best mixes ever. Um, so like these kind of things, I had these kind of little notes, but then as I started going through them, I started like, really like, I want to really think about how I do these. So especially with the Detroit one, I started off with, you know, pulling just standard Detroit stuff. And then I started thinking about, I was like, no, that's a bit too obvious. So I want to like look for a bit more unknown things, but keeping it Detroit. So I still had Detroit artists. And then I stopped entirely with that. I was like, you know what? The best thing that I could do for a Detroit mix is make it about Detroit with not one single Detroit artist on it. So that's why number five is called Influence, because it's about Detroit's inspiration to artists all over the planet. So not a single track on that mix is made by a Detroit artist or has a remix by a Detroit artist. It's all people from Japan, Europe, like that are all influenced by them but have that Detroit sound. So like, I really wanted to like go into this kind of concept and use my time wisely on these. Okay. So what was the experience of actually getting it out into the world like? Because, I mean, this was a period where it was a bit of a, I don't know, I don't know what the, the, the right word is, but it was there was definitely a, a battle for attention in the absence of shows. Right. So people are doing, as you as you mentioned, like wearing silly costumes on live streams and, and this kind of shit and generally lowering the tone of the overall conversation. So tell me how we how did you go about this and like how what were the challenges and, you know, tell me all about that stuff. I mean, I didn't I did it in the only way that I know how, which is, you know, I've been I'm well known for have, having done potentially uh far too many podcasts in my day and just giving away music so i felt very comfortable and just to be clear by podcast you mean online mixes online right. mixes yeah yeah and um 
And yeah, so I, I've just kind of had that burned into my head that like I felt confident in my ability to post a mix online and know that it will get attention and follows. Um, I did create like a little website for it so it could be all organized. And I spoke with an artist who created or I used his artwork for all the designs and I wrote a little piece about it and I kind of calculated it where it'd be like, you get the mix on week one, but on week two, I'll release the track list. So you had to listen to it blind. You know, I don't want people to make assumptions just by reading the track list and being like, oh, I don't like that track. I'm not clicking play. So you had to go into it just listening. Um, But I kind of, I didn't want to go with any sort of like, I don't want this to be something that is so about me attention grabbing that I'm hiring a PR firm to like make sure that this thing gets front page on RA every two weeks or something like that. Like I just wanted it to be organic, like everything that I've done pretty much in my career. So I never was expecting it to get a million plays or anything like that. And I'm till still to this day totally fine with that because I get people every once in a while that they stumble upon it. They they see me play and they're just like, wait a second, you did 20 hours of podcasts that are all vinyl only? Hold on a sec. And they full stop and they go and listen and they're like, yo, this is pretty impressive undertaking. So that's that's kind of just how the, the approach I had to it. I didn't I didn't feel like it had to be a thing. You know, like I did but it, it became what it was, and it's still getting plays to this day, and I'm fine with that. And, yeah, that's kind of all I could ask for with it. It, it was more of a um, catharsis, I think, than anything. It could have gotten zero plays, and I still would have been pretty satisfied with myself mm. at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, I mean, as you were saying that, the analogy sprung to mind was the, you know, the making of, a, of an album, you know, producing an album. And I mean, obviously you're a producer too, but I mean, you're, um, I think you'd be the first to admit that you're sporadic in your uh, music making. <laughs> is, is, is that fair? Before, before sporadic, I, is a, sporadic is a, um, I would say the most accurate and polite <laughs> thing. Right, yes. right. So does that sort of comparison make sense? Is it a similar way that you would, might, you might imagine approaching making an album because i mean like you know coming up with a concept and influences and and putting it together and execution and all the rest of it and then the like sort of promoting of it i mean i guess i guess any big project involves this stuff but it does sort of sound analogous to someone like you making an album well i mean to be fully transparent i have been banding about the album that i'm going to eventually make for at least five years now and i think i've gotten two percent of it done (laughs) so (laughs) it's it's just one of those things where it's like i yes flits flits and stops that like i get going or then it it just kind of fades away or life happens and i just can't get back to it or like i said during the pandemic i am still impressed by people that during the pandemic they came up with like five albums or like four ep i'm like how the how the fuck did you do this? Like I had all the free time in the world and I decided to fondle 3,700 records. Like, you know, it's like I could have used my time a bit more wisely here, but in, in the same capacity, that's what I am the most comfortable with. So I'm going to stick with what I know because ideally one, one good situation like this, like having done all 10 of these mixes, I definitely came out of it feeling like I had evolved as a DJ and, the last 
couple of years of DJing, I feel like I'm playing the best sets of my life, which is now making me feel more comfortable to get back in the studio. So there was like a, a weird stepping stone of things that I had to go through, but it was that journey of self-evolution that I needed to figure out. And it just happened to make the most sense to me to start with what I know, which is vinyl and work my way up to the thing that I know the least, which is now production. Yeah, so. I mean, you, I guess you're sort of like hinting at sort of self-confidence there, right? And you're obviously very confident in your you know, ability as a DJ and particularly with playing vinyl and, you know, the sort of relationship with um, the way records go together uh, and the building of, of sets. So, I mean, do you think it's... Do you think you're quote-unquote sporadic studio output is is related to that i mean do you, do you think that um you know having confidence in your sort of production has held you or a lack of confidence in your production has held you back there would you say absolutely um which is funny because <clears throat> just maybe like a month or so ago i was kind of starting to like you know i reopened ableton for the first time in god knows how long and i started going through some old projects and I was, I was giggling at them because I was like, my God, this is like, some of this is just so pathetic. But then I started listening to some of my oldest productions when I knew the least. And I was like, man, these sound better than the last couple of things that I've made. Why is that? And I think it was because besides, you know, blind luck and naivete, I think I was just more open to just pushing buttons and experimenting and trying to figure it out. Now that I know the things that I know about production, I'm way too, I get in my own brain. I become very clinical about it. And I'm like, well, I should do this. You know, not that I'm the type that like I need, I can't finish this album until I buy a drum machine. I don't have a single piece of equipment. I, everybody thinks I own like st a studio to the, the moon, but I literally do everything in the box. So I have nothing that's keeping me from working. Even if I'm like sitting in an airport lounge, I could be working on music, but I don't. I could, it's like, I just, I don't know why, but like I'm, I've, I've regressed in that sense that I'm not working on music because I feel like it's not going to be what's in my head, which I think is the main problem that a lot of producers have. I can hear exactly what I want. I can hear exactly what I want. I have no idea how to get there. So I stop and I go buy records because then I know that's what works for me. Yeah, I mean, it does sound very familiar. I think like having those sorts of mental hurdles to get over can be, I guess, paralyzing in a way. I mean, I've certainly been through periods myself where I feel like in exactly the same way, I know what I want to do, but I'm not quite sure how to do it. And in in some way, there's there's no substitute for just trying to plow through that. But but having said that, like everyone is different. So some I've had people on the show and and discuss this topic, and they'll say when it's not working, I just stop and don't do anything. I think Steffi said that actually. Like she was like, if 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 um you know if I get into the studio and it's not working that day, I just stop. I just go and do something else. And for me personally, I can't do that. For me, if it's not working, I have to soldier on because I know that I have to get through, I have to make that bad music to eventually get to the good, to good music. Do you know what I mean? And my hard drive is is full of, of tracks, which are terrible. And But the, but because there are so many of them, like, like you say, I, I kind of go through ages old tracks and, and then 
and there'll be loads of them which are terrible but then there'll be a couple which I just assume were bad and I'm like oh actually no this one which I overlooked because I was in such a bad headspace at the time that I made it maybe this one is actually decent and salvageable yeah I mean I, and I think that's my crux is that I'll start working on something and it's either going to go smooth and I sit there and I soldier on and I keep going and I work on it until I can't which for me is usually about a two to three hour attention span with it because then I just either get bored or I feel like I'm spinning my wheels but there's multiple times where I've opened up Ableton stared at it for about 30 seconds and just closed it because I was just like it's just it's just not today's just not the day like I just I can't force it so uh, but I feel like that fortunately for me is becoming less and less Um, I'm suddenly feeling this desire which is the original reason I started producing which is that I was having a hard time finding stuff that I wanted to buy, meaning if you can't buy it, make it yourself. So I feel like over the last year, and I've been pretty vocal about it on Twitter, is that, sure, I love giving getting free promos of stuff, but when I spend three and a half hours of my life going through 250 promos and I download three of them only because they're the best three – to then listen to them two days later and just delete those three, I'm like, <laughs> like pretty frustrated. So now I'm back at this point where it's just like, if you can't find it, just make it. And I feel like the the cycle is going to repeat itself and I'm just going to start cranking out a couple tracks on a regular basis. Yeah, I mean, it's all about getting in the right frame of mind, isn't it? And then trying to execute but i think like um you know by the sound of things having that process of of playing out is extremely useful i mean that's certainly been the case for me like i found it difficult to make dance music during the during the pandemic just because of the disconnect from you know being able to test stuff out and hear how stuff like works and get that kind of audience reaction you know i really kind of lost touch with that yeah i mean that's that's the problem I had is that's the problem I had is that it was just like how do I make a techno track when I'm literally it's just me my wife and my dog at home like it's like it doesn't I hate to break it to most people but it's kind of not the same as playing Bergheim um so it's you know it was one of those things where it's just like I just I'm not feeling it because I'm just like I said the feedback loop has been cut off it's just suddenly truncated so once that restarted, it was just like, oh, I do remember what it's like to go out and play a new track of mine and learn that something's not working or uh, feeling inspired by the DJ before me or after me or something like that. So now it's like, yeah, okay, now we're back into that loop. Let's start utilizing the time that I do have and start creating again. So Yeah, absolutely. So so what's the best thing going on in Berlin at the moment? I've been back like once or twice since the pandemic, but I haven't really got into the got back into the scene like what's 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 the best stuff going down there in terms of clubs well i mean and i don't mean to be biased because i now am a resident at trezor but um globus remodeled it's they did a remodeling of globus the upstairs of trezor which is the equivalent of the panorama bar if you want to even use that analogy um but they remodeled it and put a new sound system in it and it is i think hands down the best sounding room in the city and They've been doing a pretty exceptional job of stacking their lineups both up and down. And it's just, it's one of those places where I'm just like, I hate to ask for guest list every week, but 
I'm gonna have to be on the guest list every week when I'm in town. It's it's just yeah, that's the kind of the comfort zone. I feel it's it's just got a good vibe. It feels like it's a uh, doing all the right things. I haven't been to Tradesville for years, actually. So so how are the, and I haven't been keeping on the bookings either. So so how does it? How do they split up the music between upstairs and downstairs? There was a period where upstairs was house and downstairs was techno. But I don't think that's the case anymore because there's been plenty of times where upstairs is techno and it could be like this psychedelic, groovy, trippy kind of um, vibey stuff. And then downstairs is just harder techno <laughs> because it's Trezor. Um, you know, it could be absolutely bang and downstairs. So I wouldn't say that they really differentiate or, or that there is an explicit you know, up as one, down as the other. To be fair, that hasn't really worked in a lot of places where they have two rooms in quite a while, from my memory. Uh, you know, I do remember moving here and upstairs in Panorama Bar was house music and disco and, like, it was very soulful. And downstairs was techno. And then there was a time, suddenly, where I went upstairs and it's like, oh, it's harder and faster upstairs than it is downstairs. And I think... This is I'm in like Bizarro land right now. So this kind of circles back to the uh, original conversation of people making their own rules with uh with things these days. So uh right. Uh yeah, but I I think Trezor definitely has uh, a pretty strong uh handle on things, especially with not only with the bookings but like the sound system in Globus is just it's yeah. It's, Which room do you tend to play in? I mostly play in Globus when I play there. Yeah, I need to check it out. Yeah, it's 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 just a it's just a good vibe, and the sound, like I said, the sound system is just like holy shit. Like they did everything right. It's wood floors. They kind of turned the room ninety degrees, so it's not so deep and long. Um, they put a lambda sound system in it, and it's just the only thing I can think of that's kind of similar is looks um, in Lisbon. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's kind of got this. It's kind of got the same vibe to oh, that. Okay. Um, with like a properly, you know, situated room, wood floors, the booth is really comfortable. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, yeah, I think it's pretty, pretty impressive. Nice. Um, but other than that, there's also, there's so many goddamn parties in this city. I can't keep up, you know, like it's Berlin. Berlin is back. It's, it's, you look at resident advisor and it's like, wait a second. Are, are there really 83 parties on a Friday <laughs> night? Like, God, good God. That doesn't mean they're all good. Or they're all packed, but that's still a lot of clubs for one little city. I mean, that's good news, though, because I'd heard sort of conflicting stories about that and how, like, the comparative lack of tourists that are coming to Berlin now has had a sort of bit of an effect on the on the club scene there. Uh, but I guess the kind of flip side of that is that there's been a kind of injection of kids, I think, since the pandemic, like, that are coming. Certainly, like, we did a hot flush party um, at Eden, and the crowd was so young. I couldn't believe how young the crowd was. I mean, it there's definitely, definitely been a couple still. moments going out here or playing here in Berlin where I'm just like, I am the oldest person in this room. And I'm not <laughs> that old. Yeah. But it's like, <laughs> right. whoa. And by quite a long way as well, right? I mean, I've definitely been in, in rooms where I'm like, wow, I'm 10 years older than everyone else. Here. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's been a couple moments where I'm just like, if it was back in the States, these kids would be asking me to buy them alcohol. Like... <laughs> yeah, right. I'm like, yo, this is a bit much. This is a bit extreme. Right, exactly. Okay, so you mentioned the States. You are, as you mentioned, from 
from Detroit. And um, one of the things we like to do on the show is, is uh, sort of chart with the development of music scenes around the world f- from people's first-hand experiences. So growing up in Detroit, why don't you... Let's just start at the beginning. Like, what was... Um, What's, what's your kind of backgrounds there? Like, what kind of a school did you go to and all that kind of stuff? Um, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I mean, my parents were, we grew up, I grew up, like, when I was, you know, young, young, like, three, four. We lived in just outside of the city limits in Birmingham, um, which was, you know, affluent and to a, to a degree, uh, but very white. Um, and then at some juncture... We moved out more towards like the suburbs and my parents still live in the same house that they've been in for 30 something years. It's dirt road, you know, it's on a lake. It's kind of, it's in the cut a little bit more. Um, but I was always drawn to the fact that like, I did not want to, uh, continue getting my, uh, societal education from such a cloistered, uh, just one one dimensional kind of town so i was always making my way downtown the second i could into detroit and lo and behold i ended up finding myself obviously like in record stores looking for music um and before i even knew really what like techno was because i was really big into like the hardcore and punk scene um and i was going to record time and melodies and memories and some of these other places and you know you see the flyers next to the door they've got fancy artwork almost for some reason there was a really strong period of time where everything was like a large-breasted anime girl uh and you know (laughs) at at that when you're looking for flyers next to the door you're kind of that's where your eye will gravitate to when times times have changed yeah yeah when when you're when you're when you're a 17 year old 18 you're just like holy what's that um but then that line led me into discovering the whole, you know, electronic music and rave side of things and jumping so through what, the hoop. what year are we talking here, roughly, just so we can put it in context? Like 96 uh, was really yep. when I, I, the first couple of things I went to. The very first party I went to was one of Richie Houghton's parties called Jack-O-Lantern, which just happened to be... Uh, I, th- I don't think it was on Halloween, uh, but my birthday is the day before Halloween, which is lovingly referred to as Devil's Night in uh, Detroit. And um, I, yeah, that was the first party I went to. It was going to see Plastic Man live. And I kind of was just like, wait, what? What is going on right now? I was super confused, but uh, yeah, I was pretty hooked from that point on. Um, so let me let me ask you. Let me jump jump in there and ask you, like, to what extent were you aware of the musical history of Detroit at that point? Um, I I mean, so I was, you know, before really getting into electronic music, I was working at a record store. Probably, it would be considered a child labor law violation, but whatever. <laughs> and uh, I was working at a record store, and. My the the guy that was the the owner had a very strict no rap and no techno policy, and like I under <laughs> I, I understood the no rap part, but I was like, what do you mean no? Te- like what the hell's techno? So I started like seeing what he would ban in a sense, and started digging into it, and like really a it, it got my attention because again this f- circling back 
when you tell somebody no, of course they're going to want to find out. So um, I started digging into it and like finding, I'll never forget, I can't remember what year it came out, but it was like when uh, New Forms by Ronnie Size and Represent came out. I lost. Yeah, ninety six. God, I lost my goddamn mind. Like I, it was like, hold on, eyes open. My God, that was the one that like really stitched me up. And I think there was a Plastic Man album that came around that same time, which is why I saw Plastic Man and I was like, oh, I want to go see this guy. I think it was Consumed. Maybe came out around that time. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, that was the one. Yeah, I was gonna say. And and uh, yeah, and I was just like, okay, I got to go check this out. So, um. Yeah, that was that was kind of the the impetus to start investigating it. But little did I know that, like you know, I'm growing up in Detroit or outside of Detroit, and we still get all the the, the broadcast and the public broadcasting from downtown. And I think a lot of people at this juncture are aware of the new dance show, which was the equivalent of Soul Train, and uh, which is just people in a club or like in this case it was just like a warehouse and there's a dj playing and they're dancing and they're doing like their moves on camera and they're cutting cutting shapes and all this kind of stuff but they would always have like the track list and stuff like this underneath so it's like a bunch of people i'm coming home from school and i'm turning on the television to watch reruns of the new dance show and it's like green velvet and dbx and like all this stuff is on on television and I was just like writing these things down and kind of like really like I need to figure this out when I go to the record store the next day. And it was just this like, holy crap, like this is actually like a thing. Like this is, you know, in my mind, I was like Detroit's known for Motown. But it was like it goes a lot deeper than that in the evolutionary arc of things. And yeah, I think I just in some sense became extremely proud of the fact that like I'm growing up in an area that has gifted the world on so many different levels, so many different types of musical geniuses and, and uh, the creation of so many different genres and stuff like that. So it was just like, yeah, I just really started to spend time digging and like enjoying it. Like I said, I had an opportunity. I worked at a record store where I could just sit and sift through things all day long. So I was just like, especially the things that my boss told me, I wasn't allowed to buy for the shop. Yeah, let me let me let me ask you about that. Just let me cut across and say, and just to ask, no rap, no techno. Now, what I immediately thought when you said that was basically this guy is sort of blocking black music. But there's a big but there. In '97, we're way past you know the first the first wave, or even the second wave of Detroit techno as it is is known. So I'm guessing that maybe it wasn't so much of a sort of racially tinged music policy there. Is that is that right? I, I think he was he was just a purist. You know, he's a guy that smoked a lot of weed and listened to a lot of bluegrass and stuff like that. And I think and jazz. I think right. We're pure in pure high fidelity territory. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's that kind of music snobbery. So like I'll ne- I'll never forget like working at the record store and like he would leave for the day after I got out of school. And would come to work and, you know, of course, he leaves me with the keys. I'm like 15 years old. I'm closing up shop, counting down the till. But like one of the days, and I'll never forget it, and I still have them at home. But one of the days that like, you know, people would come in and try to hawk their stuff because they're just local people. And one of them was, it was the two guys from the Insane Clown Posse. They came in and they were trying to sell their first cassette, which is called Dog Beats. 
And I was then like, I was like, I can't buy it because like the, you know the, the owner has a no rap policy. But I was like, I was listening to it, and I was just like, you know what? I'm gonna buy it personally for myself. So I gave them five bucks, and they sold me a copy of Dog Beats. Go on eBay and look for an original copy of Dog Beats. These fucking things sell for like four hundred dollars because Insane Clown Posse is this like massive, ridiculous thing now, and it's just like, man, like my owner kind of screwed up on some of this stuff. But it's yeah, generational. <laughs> we keep see, we seemingly keep going back to this whole like old man yells at cloud. Tell the kids what not to do. They're going to do the exact opposite. That seems to be the theme of this conversation. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but like, let me just to, just to return to the the kind of racial aspect of Detroit scene. Like in my conversation with with Seth Choxler, like he was saying that well, his kind of journey, if I recall correctly, was that he. His initial way in was through Richie and through that side of it. I no, I think I think if if I remember correctly, Seth's initial was when he was working at Melodies because he was working with Theo. Yeah, and, yeah, but I think before that, where, where the way um, he the, 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 his first introduction to the music, I think, was through, through going to see Rich. I think that's what he said. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I might be wrong about that, but I, um, but anyway, but his his kind of take on it was that it, it was a very kind of segregated scene is that your perception of it uh it had its pockets for sure i mean it was funny because i'll never forget that there was this kind of whole concept of that like you had the originators with derek and juan and kevin and all this and blake baxter and all these guys and then out of fucking nowhere comes richie houghton who's a not even technically from detroit he's canadian and yeah i mean for fuck's sake it's right? like it's not only not only are you not black but you're actually not from america so like there was this kind of double dip of like fooled me once shame on me um but he just started doing it better than everybody and i think they got pissed off and yeah there was some sort of animosity and hatred i can't for 100 percent. don't quote me this isn't fact but from what i understood there was a long period of time where Derek may fucking hated richie houghton like absolutely hated him but that's just the name of the game sorry that somebody came in and did it a little bit better and i don't want to say it in a culture yeah i mean that doesn't have to be a racial thing at all you know that's professional competitiveness exactly. right and that happens everywhere. that happens in every scene right. and every genre have to be put in those yeah. terms but it just so happened to be that it was created by black guys in detroit and us skinny white dude from canada comes in with his nerdy glasses and just runs them all under the table and it was just like well shit you know you're of course you're gonna make invisible parallels there yeah and let's be clear to the audience like we've already mentioned that dex effects and 9091 is you know arguably the best commercially released mix cd ever and there was definitely a point at which richie horton was the best techno dj in the world bar none i would say there was a few years in which there was there was literally no one who really came close to him you know it was it was genuinely just incredible what he was doing i remember going to when he was doing the dex effects the 909 tour at a club that he was involved with in Windsor, I think it was called 13 Below. I think it was his birthday party. And he did like a 14-hour Dex Effects 99, four turntables in a 99, all vinyl. And I think the for about five of those hours, I just stood in front, not even dancing, just like a gasp. Just like, what <laughs> the actual fuck is oh, going on right now? What is happening? Like, I was just like having a panic attack, but being so just like blown away by it. 
Yeah, I mean, he's he pushed the bound. He still pushes boundaries, especially with technology. If it weren't for him, we wouldn't have Tractor Scratch because of record bar. Uh, what was it? Um, uh, what was it? before Tractor Scratch? It was called something else. Yeah, Serato um, and Final Scratch and all that. Final yeah, Scratch. Yeah. That's we, what it we've was, yeah. we've talked about this on the show before. Like, I mean, he. You're absolutely right that he has pushed boundaries throughout his career. I mean, my and I've said this many times on the show before. Like, I think with with mixed results, right, in terms of its impact on the wider scene. I mean, my I've I've said this a million times as well that my view of developments of DJ technology are mm, well, they're mixed, should we say? I'm not sure that everything that he has pushed has resulted in positive change but he has he has resulted in change right and to yeah, some I mean, degree you have to respect that i mean yeah without getting turning this into a complete tangent if it weren't for him alan heath zone 62 would not have become the industry standard of a dj mixer that's in every club on the planet you know if it weren't for him ableton probably wouldn't have evolved to the point that it is granted a lot of that's mono lake that created it but Richie Houghton doing DE9 closer to the edit, which was done on Ableton, was like, it really showed you how looping and sampling and all this kind of stuff could change the concept of playing one record into another. You could now layer 14 records into each other, you know, that kind of thing. So, like, he's he's done his job, but that was a, of an era, I would say, now. So, but, yeah, D- Detroit was... An interesting, and it still is. I mean, I remember when I was uh, playing at the works in Detroit quite frequently and having Carl Craig come up to me, or not come up to me, but like come stand directly in front of the DJ booth and kind of like watch me while I was playing for about five minutes and then like look me in the eye, nod and shrug and go, it's okay, and then walk away. And I was just like, Mom. Like, I think he's done me. That, he's, I think he's done that to me as well before. I think that's just something he does. It's quite. It's very intimidating. It's <laughs> super intimidating. Like I was absolutely shitting my pants because I'm just like, don't screw this up. And like make an impression, make an impression, make an impression. And then it was just like, eh. I was like, oh god, you know. But that's. I think that's just that's just growing up in Detroit in a nutshell. Yeah, absolutely. So okay, we got to you working at record stores. When did you start? Well, when did you start your record collection? I mean, well, I mean, like by the sound of things, then. But I mean, in in a, in a kind of serious, I'm a DJ kind of a way. When did that start? So uh, I started co- like really kind of like buying and collecting probably around ninety eight, ninety nine, and I didn't have turntables at home at that point. So I was buying them and I was pretty much stashing them at a friend's place. So I was always kind of on every weekend fucking off to either go to a party or go to my buddy's place and play records like every weekend um, for like my last year of high school. And then, you know, before I really, cause I never really left Detroit. I was going to university, like school there and I was working, I was helping run a club downtown called Oslo um, and all these kind of things. So like I kept myself involved, but I was always just like, I never really brought it home a hundred percent. And then finally one day I did, and I'll never forget, like, just annoying the shit out of my dad because he just hated, just hated it. He was just like, it all sounds the same. It's just like, you're keeping me up. I'm trying I'm trying to watch the hockey game, and all I can hear is your, <laughs> is your music down from downstairs. So 
Yeah, I mean, I was doing it, but I was kind of just keeping it on the sly. But it really kind of exploded. Um, that's when I really, really started spending a majority of my income on vinyl in, yeah, like 2000, 2001. And that's when it was just like, I was that guy getting a box a day from Juno, New Loop, um, uh, Bent Crayon, and some of these other records. Or like, um, uh, what's uh, Adam X's... Uh, record store that was in new york uh sonic groove you know they were just showing up like every single day and what was your well i mean so did you have a like what to what extent was there a particular sounds that you were interested in at that point or were you just were you like just interested in lots of different stuff and you were collecting you know i was no i would say i was really just sticking with again so I always use DexFX 909 as the launching point for what really switched right. my brain. And I, I went in on this whole tribal-y, groovy, bassline-y, but funky, but harder kind of techno. So I was really into that, but also buying a lot of dub techno. And I mean dub techno in the like deep chord, rhythm and sound, um, the, the very, very chill stuff. So I had two kind of ends of the spectrum. And I kind of kept it there. And then it kind of was, you know, there was those moments where it was like, okay, you know, like I do like some house music, but I th- I feel like 2000 house music, which in Detroit we refer to as handbag house because it was just so flamboyant and so like diva-y vocals of every, and I was like, I can't fucking stand that shit. I wonder where that term came from. I'm pretty sure that's a British term and it was imported to America from the UK dance press because that's what we called the kind of house that was played by DJs like Jeremy Healy. And it was called Handbag House because the girls would put their handbags down in the middle of a dance floor and dance around their handbags. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's just that very flamboyant and like borderline disco. And I, I, and this is, I'm sure this will get the most comments out of the whole thing. I fucking hate disco. I really do. <laughs> I know that if you can't you can't be involved in techno and house music without loving disco. I fucking hate disco. I think I really you, I think you like can disco. be involved and hate disco. I mean, I'm, I, I mean, I, I love fucking like I love Earth, Wind, and Fire, for example. But I mean, I'd never play an Earth, Wind, and Fire record in a DJ set. But I can appreciate the musicality, you know. I of course I can appreciate the musicality of a lot of things, but at the same time. You won't catch me ever throwing in Donna Summer in the middle of my set. You know, like it's just not going to happen. Well, I mean, that is a crime against humanity, I think, at this point, to be honest. It still <laughs> happens on probably a semi-regular basis, but, you know. Oh, absolutely happens, for sure. I mean, really, in 2023, if you're playing I Feel Love, then you, you should have a long, hard look at yourself in the mirror. But having said that, there's far worse records getting played than I Feel Love right now in DJ sets. Of course. He, of course. By the way, do you know who it was who played fucking Cotton Eye Joe in Panorama? Uh, I, yeah, I do. There was, I can't remember her name, but it did come up in a, uh, an article that somebody did kind of clock who this DJ was. I want to know who it was. I mean, I'm not saying I'm going to, like, hold a grudge for the rest of my life, but to me, that's the kind of desecration of hallowed ground. Um, Well, I mean, I was at Panorama Bar. We we, we don't have to name and shame. Don't worry. We have to name and shame. (laughs) I'll find it. Don't worry. It was was in an article. Uh, I will find it. 
But they did find who the person was that played it. To be fair, I was also in Panorama Bar for Nick Hopner's birthday party and did hear The Venga Bus is Coming by the The Venga Boys. And I have never been so angry in my life. But it it does exist. I think you'd be justified in just going up and stopping the record at that point. Felt like it. Not going to lie. It's like I could have been, <laughs> you can keep my 25 bucks, but I am going to make sure this doesn't happen. Um, yeah, but so it's, you know, well, some people make questionable choices. We're doing that thing again where we start getting. I know we are. All, I know we are. <laughs> <laughs> How do we get? How do we get onto this? You said you you said you hated disco. Why were you saying that? Just because like a lot of people assume that like if if you're going to be involved, I think in electronic music, then there's like rules to, to it. Like you go and you grow up in Detroit and you don't like Strings of Life. I've heard Strings of Life so many fucking times that I don't I don't need to hear it ever again. Or like Knights of the Jaguar. Please, please, when you D, DJs of the world, when you go to Detroit, don't play Knights of the Jaguar. <laughs> like, we <laughs> know. We, we've heard it. We were there. It's fine. You're not impressing anybody by playing Knights of the Jaguar. Just stop. Do you. Play your set. You know, it's that kind of thing. Anyway, um, so I wanted to go from Detroit to your experiences in New York. So are we done with Detroit, basically, is I guess is my question. Or is there more stuff we need to cover here? No, I mean, I'll always go back to Detroit. I still love Detroit, for sure. Um, I just don't think it's going to be the place that I will ever uh, end back up. You know, like, it, it is my pedigree, and it is where I was trained, in a sense. But I feel like I learned a lot there, and I don't. I don't feel like I need to go back. I will always claim it as my my home space. But in some capacity, uh, and I've I've said this to a couple other people, some in confidence, some in just general conversation like this, that there's some underlying mystique about Detroit that you're supposed to stay there forever. So when you leave, you're a traitor, in a sense. And I kind of, I started to feel that vibe that like once I moved to New York, it was like, oh, you're you're not you're not gonna be from Detroit anymore. Well then, fuck you, get out. So it was like, oh, okay. Well, I didn't really feel very welcomed back anymore. Uh, so yeah, yeah. I mean, I you know, just looking at it, looking at it from afar. It definitely feels like that there is a well there's there's a really high degree of solidarity, particularly amongst the the older guys and you know particularly like the first and second waivers there's a very much a kind of like closed shop it's like either you're with us or you're against us, but even if you're with us like if you're not part of our group, then you you never will be and I wonder like i mean how much of that do you think is to do with the kind of perception that what they did musically was or profited upon by other people. hundred. Do you think? Absolutely hundred percent. It's that. So my whole interpretation of the history of it all is that, you know, it all started in Detroit and they were onto something that then was quickly um, 
co-opted overseas. And the underlying issue was that overseas, especially the UK, recognize that this is no different than jazz music. That we should embrace it, we should understand it, we should turn it into a profit, and we should give it its opportunity. Let's put Armand van Helden on top of the pops. You know, these kind of things. Like, they they really went for it. Whereas in the United States, the only reaction that America had was, this is brainwashing your children, it's just a place full of drugs, we need to ban it and make it illegal, and blah, blah, blah. So it just never felt like they were even remotely understood on their own turf by their own people so they just kind of felt like look at all you motherfuckers having a good time at my expense like i did the hard work and you're all getting rich off of it this is i you know there's an old allegory of like kind of especially when saunderson and big fun took off he really kind of left detroit behind at that point he 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 moved on. He was just like, I did my thing, I got you, and now I'm going to go make money everywhere else. And I think those kind of like, when you see the person that you grew up with run away, and you you just kind of get offended by the whole concept. So it's like they're just they're trying to hold on to it. You know, there's a there's a serious reason that Moody Man will never move out of Detroit because he believes in it so much. And I think his his approach to it all of being this like giver and caretaker and um librarian of the whole thing is fucking brilliant and i don't think anybody else has the capacity to do it and he's willing to take the time to make sure that nobody forgets and i think that's a good thing because it's so easy to get stomped on especially when you're a city like detroit that doesn't have the funds to fight in the same capacity they don't have the way they don't have the means to say no they get a contract that slides across their desk it's better than the zero that they're making right now. So they're going to do it and they're going to probably wipe away their ownership of something unintentionally, but it's just a means to get out of the ghetto in a sense. So, Mm. yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, the difference between the way Europe and various different countries in Europe and areas in Europe kind of embraced it in a way that mainstream America and just, I guess, clubs in America and underground culture in America didn't. I've had various arguments with people over the years about the nature of the way um, the European dance scene developed. And it's definitely true to say that those first and second wave Detroit guys were, you know, they were brought over to play and had their music directly embraced. It wasn't just copied. Like they were brought over to play at Trezor and they were brought over to play at clubs in the UK. And it wasn't just a case of just like, you know, producers in Europe listening to the records and ripping them off. Like there was definitely a direct sort of like link there. And I wonder the way you've put it there, it's like it's very much of a kind of paradigm of like United States and North American racial politics, which is, I think, sometimes sort of conflated with racial politics in in Europe, which is not to say that racism doesn't exist, but it's a bit different in its nature, I think in Europe, I think mostly because um, of the lack of the direct link to slavery. I mean, obviously, Europeans were ultimately the perpetrators of it, but like it didn't happen in Europe in the same way. Do you know what I mean? So you don't have quite that same direct link to it. 
So how much of it do you think? I mean, and I want to, I'm, I'm very conscious that we're two white dudes talking about this. And like one of my main aspirations for this show is to get one of those first or second generation Detroit guys on the show to talk about this issue. But like how much of it do you think is directed squarely at white America as opposed to sort of Europe, do you think? You're talking about like Detroit's kind of just general... Yeah, the, the general kind of adversarial attitude. Um, I would say it's more... I, I think you touched on a, a very important point to it is that they were all embraced and respected globally, no matter where they went. You know, Trezor being a perfect example of bringing over the Detroit guys and treating them no different than anybody else. Proper contracts, you know, like doing these kind of things. Europe mostly did it. UK especially. Japan loves Detroit and all these kind of things. But then when you think about it, in their own fucking hometown, until really until the Electronic Music Festival and around, I would say 2004, when it really started to take off, um, no, so what about really, movement? Yeah, Demf and movement. It right? was Demf at that point. It was the DEMF at that point. But when it when that started to actually uh, go in the positive and became a global recognized thing, I think that honestly it took them that fucking long to actually get recognized. And I think that's sad that there's there's people that the only way I can equate it is like, have you seen the documentary Searching for Sugar Man? Which is which is about uh, Rodrigo or Rodriguez? Rodrigo, he's this um, kind of folk singer, born and raised in Detroit, um, got absolutely no love. He could have easily been bigger than you know, like Bob Dylan. Nobody fucking loved him, but somebody for some fucking reason, his biggest fan base is like South Africa, and they froth over. They all thought he was dead. They made up these these stories about how he had committed suicide on stage and all these kind of things. Turns out the dude's a fucking janitor in in like somewhere in Michigan. And he's just been, he had no idea that he was famous and that's how bad it felt in Detroit. I think for some of these guys were like Blake Baxter could probably walk down the street. Nobody knew who the fuck he was. Now they probably do because they've seen his influence. They've seen museum expositions about the importance of Detroit techno and and the Bellevue 3 and all that stuff but it took them that long living in their own city to get actually recognized whereas around the globe they're heroes so yeah there's this weird disconnect that like the further you go the more popular you are when you should it should be the other way around you like you, you hometown hero is called hometown hero for a reason you know but for a lot of these guys they I don't think I, th- I still think some of these guys aren't even getting the proper respect that they they really deserve. And, and I'm talking about in Detroit. It's, it's just such a bizarre inverse of the way things should work. Yeah, I mean, actually, not getting respect in your hometown is something actually that does happen. I mean, obviously, there are plenty of examples of, of you know, the quintessential hometown hero, and that's your biggest kind of fan base. But there are also, I think, quite a lot of examples of, of acts who connect elsewhere and actually struggle where they're from for whatever reason. And often it's quite unpredictable where music connects. I mean, as, as you just described, right, this dude who's you know famous in South Africa for no discernible reason other than like that music fit that culture just by fluke, right? 
but I think like certainly in the in the, the example that we're talking about it did feel a little bit more pointed just because of the history I think of Detroit like what happened in the 60s the legacy of the the kind of pushback against the civil rights movement and also what happened with the industrialization and you know, the moving out of the factories and you know the quote unquote white flight from the city into the suburbs and all the rest of it and I think probably with that backdrop it probably and I'm guessing here, but it probably feels just that little bit more in your face. Well, I think there was also, especially with Detroit, I think there was a poisoning of the well with Motown and some of the suspicious contracts that Barry Gordy was making people sign themselves into that there immediately became a general uh, distrust. Granted, this is a a black record label owner working with black musicians. But as soon as you in, in, introduce a white record label owner asking black rec, uh, black musicians, I think there was something that was just like, I don't know about this man. And they just kind of didn't want to even engage in the possibility of things being honest. And it stuck them in a bubble that, uh, bizarrely enough, they had to go overseas where the language barrier probably made them more comfortable. And it's like you, you feel like you're lied to when it's your own dude, but when it's somebody that you've just met from across the pond, you're kind of just like, I don't know, but I feel like this guy's going to be more honest with me than my neighbor. Which is like a weird... I mean, like the... the, the um, psychological warfare, the, the mental gymnastics you have to do around that one is yeah, insane. Yeah, yeah, sure, but you can you can imagine it happening. I mean, like, the um, the backdrop to this, though, and I think... You know, what I was just saying before about industrialized deindustrialization and, you know, the experience of the city as a whole is when you compare it to what was happening in New York with hip hop and the involvement in, you know, there's plenty of involvement of white or, say, Jewish executives and managers and all the rest of it in the development of hip hop, which was, I, th- I think, I mean, there's, there's caricatures around it and like you know, plenty of bullshit has been talked and very ugly bullshit, frankly, has been talked about, particularly the participation of Jewish managers in hip hop. But I think, you know, there was positive contributions made to the development of that musical movement, like cultural movement, you know, in a way that enabled the black musicians to get paid and get recognition in hip-hop in a way which never really happened or didn't happen to anywhere near the same extent in techno. But I think maybe that also that benefited from a different thing. So like hip-hop in in New York, they already had dance clubs and they already had teen clubs and they were just switching the musical style. Whereas I think with electronic music and techno in Detroit, they had dance clubs that were playing you know funk music and and then all of a sudden it's just like imagine at 11 o'clock it's casey and the sunshine band and then at 12 o'clock it's no ufos that might be a bit of an alarming shock to people you know what though one of my favorite episodes that i've done of this show was with a guy called gerald right and he explained to me in pretty minute detail actually his experiences of being a kind of club goer in Manchester in the 1980s 
and how it went from like you say sort of dance clubs where it was basically like the music's almost almost a secondary thing and you have this culture of dancing which i guess is sort of adjacent to break dancing but a kind of british afro-caribbean take on it and according to him like you know those clubs were very segregated it was all just black guys and and the culture was like just be as good at, at dancing as possible and then as he told it almost overnight you had this shift into acid house where suddenly like the clubs are mixed like there's loads of white people and black people dancing together and there's all this crazy new music and it really did happen in a way that it feels like it could have done in Detroit maybe you know because I mean the history of Manchester for example is actually not dissimilar if you take like you know we've mentioned like the difference in the historical racial tensions in America versus like the way it's worked out in Europe but like certainly like the history of Manchester is a history of deindustrialization and a lot of poverty and a lot of like racial segregation and the kind of legend of Acid House in the UK in particular is that it brought people together who otherwise had been segregated basically yeah, it, it, and, it, it, and it really did happen you know you know and i think you could i mean granted i wasn't there at the beginning and of of the whole detroit techno movement but i from all intents and purposes still it was predominantly black but there was no shunning of a couple white guys and a couple white girls showing up because it was just like oh we're all here to enjoy the same thing so it it did open up some doors in that sense but yeah it also kind of knocked down Every boundary, financial, racial, uh, you know, socioeconomic things that you could be getting in between it all, they dropped suddenly. Like, they literally all dropped. Yeah. Okay. Um, you moved to New York. When was it that you moved to New York? It was like 2007, 2008, somewhere in there. Oh, really? It was that late? Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. What brought you there? What, what made you move there? Um, one was just a desire to get out of Detroit you know it was pretty much all I did uh, I was working for an automotive company like you do and things were great but I just kind of could feel myself like this is not 100% what I want to do I do I did love my job but I was just like I can feel that um, music is more my passion and I was starting to ramp up as a reliable figure in Detroit as a DJ and I started getting booked not abroad obviously but like around the country and Derek Plazlako who's an old good friend of mine from Detroit had already moved to New York and he was doing the bunker and he convinced Brian who does the bunker to bring me out and I had an absolutely amazing time and it just kind of felt like, yeah, this is the next step. Like I could see this being the next logical progression in me as an artist and as a musician or as a DJ to to just go to New York because this just felt like where the action was. This is before I did my research of you're a couple years too late. Giuliani had already shut down all the clubs and like everything was illegal at this point. But um it didn't matter to me. It just felt like, yeah, it was, wasn't it? Let me sorry, let me just interrupt you there. And well, I got a question, but also illegal clubs in New York. Like I, I came over. I guess, I guess it would have been two thousand and ten to play 
black market membership and just being blown away by the just the sheer illegality oh, yeah. of what was going on and the fact that it was you know completely under the noses of the cops and no doubt you know there were palms being greased in the right way but i remember playing a black market membership party in the middle of manhattan that went on to 11 in the morning like, no, i remember this i went to it you it was in like a bank yeah yeah that. yeah it was like on fucking broadway in houston and it was <laughs> popping off till like you know Sunday morning, like actually like late morning. It was, it was insane. I never played at the bunker though. I never for for whatever reason. And the bunker's a really really important night in that period. And they, you know it's, it's an it's an institution now. I think I guess you know in, in many ways in New York. So yeah, they just they just did disc- the one just did the twenty year anniversary. Yeah, right. So could you describe those early bunker parties that you that you played at and, and attended i mean the first ones that i went to and the first one that i played was when it was in subtonic which was this i don't even know how small this place was it was not big and they brought in a couple powered mackie you know tops and a subwoofer and it was pretty dare i use the word punk rock you know it was loose it was loose it was definitely loose a little sloppy but like fun just absolutely fun um and those were the ones that were just kind of like the that's what that's what hooked me is that like this is absurd um and i think that's part of why i liked it so much because i was like as i was exiting detroit things were really starting to feel sparse you know you would in detroit the parties on a great Friday, you were thrilled to have 55 people, 60 people show up, which is embarrassing for a city like Detroit. But that's just kind of how it was going. And then I go to New York, and it's this tiny little bar, and it's packed. It goes past 2 a.m. People are getting absolutely buck wild. And then you have the after party, and you do these things that go until Sunday. And it was just like, yeah, this is this, this feels like the right kind of trajectory. So I pulled the trigger and I moved. And of course, I immediately was just like, I I have to get involved with the bunker. I don't care. Like, you need help loading in the speakers. You need help doing this. Like, I I got hands. I'm I'm available. And I was helping on a backline kind of mentality in that sense. And that just turned into being invited to be one of the residents and I was involved with the bunker for Jesus like 14 15 years almost so yeah it just it just and how did it develop in that in that period it went from a weekly party that was sort of small but drawing like I mean if you look at the original bookings like granted very of an era a lot of the minimal sound of that time because this is also when Richie was living in New York with like the whole minus crew they were living at the Domino Sugar Factory and all these kind of things so like there was this very strong minimal influence uh, this is before they all fucked off to Berlin and started hanging out at Club Divisionaire and Perlon and all these kind of things so it was this really interesting kind of melting pot of artists and then it moved over to a couple different venues on a weekly basis still, which doing a weekly in New York, I mean, it's, it's ballsy. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of effort that was involved. And at some juncture, we kind of decided that like a monthly would be a better use of our time and our energy. And it was at um, a place called Public Assembly 
and we had just the back room for the longest time. We found a sound guy out of Philadelphia that was incredible. His sound system was just unbelievable that he would bring in every every month. And then that turned into both rooms. And we just, yeah, just kept evolving from there. And we stayed in public assembly for quite a long period of time. And then it kind of just moved around a little bit. Public assembly got bought, gentrification like you do in Williamsburg and in New York. Um, but that was about the time that I was checking out to move to Berlin. So I still had my hand in the party in some capacity with helping. Like I would come back and still play. And I would, you know, I kind of have some input input on some of the bookings in a sense. But in the end, it, it was Brian, Brian Kasanick, who who is the who is Bunker. It was his it was his thing at that point. But yeah, things once once we kind of got kicked out of um, public assembly, it it felt like an end of an era in a sense because then we became like every other illegal party in the city. We had something really strong and really secure and safe but then all of a sudden it was just like now we have to try and find warehouses and it's a bartering system and who are you going to pay off and now we got to rent this and we got and it was just that's the workload became a bit extreme at that point yeah i mean that whole like illegal rave in like infrastructure ecosystem like it it really blew my mind tamer who runs or ran Black market membership is someone who I really want to get on the show because what they were doing, as I as I just described with with their parties, was just was just crazy to me. I mean, I'd never seen anything like it. What what they were doing, and and I guess up around that and around bunker, there inevitably with the um, well, first of all, like the shutting down of the clubs in Manhattan and then the gentrification of Brooklyn. I guess by necessity, you're kind of like ducking and diving and trying to find suitable venues with increasing difficulty, right? Yeah, I mean, they just, it became slightly more and more absurd. And and it's funny because some of them ended up becoming institutions. Like one of the parties that uh, Brian from Bunker used to do, a party called Sunday Best, that was uh, at the yard in like deep Brooklyn in like Red Hook, that's where Mr. Saturday Night, who is now massive and they own, I believe nowadays, like that's where they got their start. So they kind of used the same venue that Brian had found for the Sunday parties and for Bunker. And they took their spin on it and they started doing DJ Harvey and Theo Parrish in the exact same location. And now they own one of the biggest venues in New York. It's. I think it's nowadays that they own. I can't remember which one it is, but yeah, the Mister Saturday Night guys like they took something that was already in place and they ran with it. Resolute still throws absolutely ridiculous parties on a regular basis. You know, they found a boat that was like abandoned and probably not sea. Well, definitely not seaworthy, and <laughs> it, it, it kind of it was on like a slight tilt. And they just threw parties on this boat that was just on a canal up in like Queens. And it was filthy and gross, but it was like, it was the most fun that we've had. It was like, you're definitely going to get maybe like 
if you cut yourself, you should go get a tetanus shot for sure. But like, <laughs> geez, it was just awesome. Like we just had so much fun at these kind of things. And it was just like, yeah, where are we, where are we going this weekend? Like what kind of ridiculous shit are we going to do? It kind of just felt like this, uh, it was like a cat and mouse game with, with the authorities. But at the same time, it was like a treasure hunt. And usually the treasure hunt worked out to be pretty okay. Were you living in Brooklyn at the time? Yeah, yeah, I was living in Bushwick. So mm. just, just you know, the next couple stations over from Williamsburg. Yeah, right, exactly. As immortalized in many Biggie Smalls lyrics. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you've already mentioned that you were thinking about moving to Berlin. So were you, what, what was your DJing career? Where, where was it at at that point? Like, were you beginning to get international bookings and all that kind of stuff like what was it what was the kind of trajectory that you were on in terms of that side of your career so i was becoming increasingly well known through the bunker and building a reputation so like the artists that we would have come in i would open for they kind of always had this like shit dude why are you why aren't you playing in europe and comically enough my excuse was i didn't have a passport and (laughs) I didn't I didn't have a means to go overseas, you know, like because, you know, when you grow up in the States, especially when I was living in Detroit, you drive across the bridge, you go to Canada, you drive across the bridge or you drive across the border, you go to Mexico. These are two countries that you didn't need a passport for until. Oh, do you don't need a passport to do for, to do that? Wow. You I didn't. didn't you didn't at that time. Now, you know, a post 9-11, everything changed. But like you could just I would spend it was two bucks to cross the ambassador bridge and go into Canada and I could play. I could hang out. I could come back. I could go to Can- or like Toronto or Montreal, drive over there and then come back and just yeah, two bucks to cross the bridge again. And you just and what were you doing over there? Having fun. Here you go. Just drive back across into America. Um, but then funny enough, the thing that was the uh, the impetus for me becoming internationally known was and again uh, you know i was known for making a lot of podcasts and putting them on websites and gaining a reputation globally by not even having to leave uh my house you know by 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 means of the podcast that i was creating and suddenly i get an email asking me to play labyrinth festival in japan and i had a you know slight heart palpitation but then it was like I need to get a fucking passport. So I had to like <laughs> So quickly, wait a second. What what year is this? What year 2009. Is this? 2009 2009 oh, okay. was my first yeah. international booking and it just happened to be Wow, Russ was the first person to book you outside of but North That America. was that was the very first stamp in my very first passport was going to Japan to play Wow. Labyrinth. And then wow. from there had, on uh, let me just interrupt you just to say I had lunch with Russ just after Christmas few weeks ago and uh your name br- was brought up but i had no idea that he was uh such a significant figure in the development of your of your career he's the guy that that got me a passport wow. so then from there it just it just kind of now i have this opportunity so i guess i should maybe start responding to these people that are asking me to come play in europe and it would be you know i would come overseas for two weeks play three or four shows and then go back to new york and then it was it was like oh i made some decent money overseas but i just spent it all in about four seconds in new york because yeah it's new york so then i was like okay i'm gonna go for a month come back 
then they just kept getting longer and longer and longer trips to Europe. And it hit a point where it was just like, look, I can keep going back to New York and flushing this money down the toilet, or I can just stay in Europe and it will actually live in my bank account for more than 25 minutes. So that was the, that was the reason for kind of moving over here. So how did you find adjusting to European life and specifically to German life? Because I mean, it is uh, a little bit different. Should we say? I mean, I've been here 10, I think I've been here 10 years almost, and I'm still adjusting to German life. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't think one does. New York is not America. Paris is not France. Berlin is not Germany. You know, like, there are these pockets where if I lived anywhere else in Germany, I would have learned German nine years ago. But by living in Berlin, you just kind of you just get away with speaking English, and there's always somebody that will understand, and it's you know it's it's, it's a weird microcosm. So it's not a fair representation of having transported myself to the other side of the planet. But you know, it's I, I do feel more appreciated, especially when it comes to music here, than I ever did in Detroit. Uh, and I do feel more appreciated when it comes to music than I did in New York because New York was, it's New York, man. It's a cutthroat city. And, and like I said, with Detroit, it was one of those, like the second you say you're leaving, you're not one of us anymore. So you be, you move far down the totem pole just by changing your zip code. Um, so yeah, it's like here, I still feel like, I'm part of the scene and I'm, I'm uh, evolving and feeling like I'm learning every day, especially again, like the multitude of record stores and the multitude of clubs. I'm always able to go out and feel inspired. Whereas opposed to New York and Detroit, it was like few and far between. And you kind of just forget because you're focused on your day job and not actually living the musical dream like you can here. Yeah, let, let me let me ask you a question about the differences between particularly New York and Berlin. So, like as you said, like New York is a famously a, it's a pretty hard town, right? And I guess sort of, sort of similar to London, but I think probably a little bit more ramped up than that, just in terms of like just the level of hustle that you that is required. And I often think about Berlin that it's almost well. It's in some ways a little bit too laid back, but then the flip side of it is there are so many people, particularly now, I mean, it's different to when I first moved over, which was 2007, particularly now there are so many people who go there with the specific intention of becoming a musician and with the idea that them moving to Berlin will in some way move this goal along just by definition. So, I mean, how do you see... I mean, there are obviously like big differences in like, you know, in just in the mentality of people and like how they conduct themselves like in between New York and Berlin. But like what what comparisons do you draw between the two places and how do you see them as being different? I mean, they're definitely similar. I would say it's no different than how many people move to Los Angeles with the pretense of I'm going to be a famous actor. You know, it's like they feel like by proxy they're in the right location and if you keep appearances up and you keep your nose down 
you will inevitably strike that opportunity. <clears throat> I think the difference being that here it's very, very easy to get lost in the whole concept of I want to be a star, but then you find yourself going from 25 hours in a club to somebody's after hours to oh shit I gotta go make coffee as a barista today and I'm already late to oh wait it's the weekend again and you just never really <laughs> you know it just never really happens because it's so it's so very very easy to just fall into a trap here um, things are cheap drugs are cheap alcohol is cheap uh if you're lucky you can if you're lucky and you can find a place to live that you don't have to move every 6 to 12 weeks you know you've you've suddenly become a bit complacent and you forget about the reason that you moved here because you're just having a good time and there's a hedonism here that is untouched <laughs> around the globe except for maybe it's like burning man <laughs> the nearest analog to it so I mean, how do you, like, I mean, has it been a good move then, do you think, for you? Like, I mean, how do you navigate through that? I mean, I never really got wrapped up in that for the most part. Um, I do have a wife and I do have a dog. So those two things keep me pretty grounded. Uh, I'm a very routine-oriented person. You know, I'm, without an alarm, I'm up at like 5.30 in the morning and I go for like a 6 or 8K run almost every single day. And I am the very anti um, caricature of a DJ. Whereas, like, I like to come home early and take a shower, and I like to get up early, and I like to go for a run. And I'm pretty. I've done that. I've done the like 20 hours at a club. I've done the whole staying up for far too long. I've done the whole calling in sick to work because you have an imaginary headache. Like, I just, I don't know. I just don't feel like I need to do it anymore. I got that out of my system. So now it's just my time to just like focus on what I need to focus on, which is <clears throat> finding and procuring and playing good music. And well, theoretically making some good music every once in a while too. So, I mean, just to finish off on the Berlin stuff, like when you, when you moved over, what were the key uh, what were the key clubs and key sort of like musical experiences which kind of really like drew you into the place and made you feel at home there? Club Division Air, easy. I mean, I used to just, I was pretty much when I was coming here and staying on a friend's couch, <clears throat> I was at Club Division Air three, four days a week. Me and Dan Bell getting pizza on a Tuesday afternoon, listening to like Radu play music. And just like, fuck <laughs> it. You know, Club Division Air at this period of time had a thing where it was like three euro to get in and you had to pay an extra euro as like a tip to the DJ. So I would come with like 10 euro. I'd have my six euro and change. I'd buy an Augustiner and a Shadi Jägermeister. But then you could pick up all the empty bottles around the club and they would give you 50 cents for every bottle. So, you know, ev everybody's in there getting up completely loose and I would go around and I would show up to the bar with like 15 bottles in my hand and they would, they would count out 
you know, like my seven euro. And I'd be like, I'll take another Augustine or another Shadi Akermeister. And I just did this for like 12 hours. So I would show up with 10 euro, but I would get drunk and listen to music and have fucking great time because I was basically the bar back. And like, this is when they finally started with the token situation where I was like, dude, you got it like one for one. You have to have a token to get a, a euro. But I was abusing that system and just staying there for hours and hours on end and like just listening to good tunes. I mean, everybody does the Burkheim thing for sure. But I was going to the original Heidegluen when it was over by Hauptmannhof, which was also just absolutely amazing. Um, and uh, yeah, just kind of like I found a couple pockets that I was hanging out. I was also hanging out in the, some of the shops a lot. I was going to Space Hall a lot. I was going to Hard Wax a lot. And just kind of just staying there and like bumping into Marcel Detman when he still worked there and these kind of things. And just like he knew me from the bunker. So it was like this. It felt none of it felt like I was um, a stranger in a strange land. I always felt like I knew somebody wherever I went. So it made it this really like easy, easy transition. You know, I don't speak the language. I don't understand what's going on half the time. But no matter where I went, it was like, oh, I know that guy. Or, oh, I know that person. And it was just like, yeah, let's go. Let's go do a shot. Let's go have some fun. You know, like there was never a, I'm standing here by myself as a weird American, <laughs> which now I do. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but yeah, it just, it just felt very welcoming. So it just felt, it felt strangely more at home than it did being in the States. in some bizarre reason. Because I felt there was like a weird pretension about New York. Well, a bit snooty and pinkies out and then like Detroit just kind of dare I say they uh, ran me out in a sense it was just like as soon as I said I was moving it was just like fuck off so. yeah I mean it's funny because I mean Berlin's got a a bit of a reputation of being quite sort of standoffish and, ru- and rude and and in fairness like like service staff in Berlin are legendarily rude like bar staff and, and waiters like so the standards of service is pretty low but but the big but is that I always found it as a city and as a music scene really really welcoming I mean when I moved there that I was shocked at how just happy people were that I was there you know and like you know willing to listen to my music and listening and you know and willing to sort of like help out you know I didn't get a I mean what I was getting at with that um you know comparison question to New York is that like I never really had it didn't feel like there was a kind of competition going on it didn't feel like a zero-sum game it genuinely felt like people just wanted to do cool music and have a good scene and develop a scene you know, I'm not, I'm not sure. Well, like even, what even when gone, I, gone. no, when I, when I first moved here, you know, like, and it was just got set up in our new flat and everything like that. And I wanted to start working on music. I was talking with Steffi and I was just like, yeah, you know, it's like just moved, just relocated, had to do all this, you know, the deposits and all these. It's like, man, I just hemorrhaged all of our money. It's like, but I really want to work on music. And Steffi flat out was just like, here's an RME baby face sound card here's a pair of monitors just go get set up pay me when you can like i don't need the money but like go do you and it's just like fuck me i was like i never got that opportunity in new york nobody was just giving me a sound card and giving me a pair of monitors just like just to trust and know that like that'll help me feel comfortable and it was just like fuck me this is this is great like this this wouldn't have happened to me in the other two previous cities that i lived in i come to berlin and it's just like 
yeah, pay me later. And I did. I paid her. It took me a couple years. But she was just like, whatever, man. Like, I know it's it's making you happy and you're getting stuff done. I'm cool with it. And it was just like such a nice, welcoming, friendly sort of um, settling in from somebody that just, yeah, just made me feel. I was like, yeah, this is the right place. I, I made yeah. the right decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's basically how I felt about it for, yeah, for the longest time that I was there. Anyway, man, this has been great. I've really really enjoyed this we've gotten some good stuff i've got one more question and that would be we've already established that dex effects 909 is the best mix cd ever so give me a few more of your favorite mix cds before we go the commercially available ones i mean that people can buy or used to be able to buy when that was a thing um so i'm still not only because I think it was just the fucking coolest concept on the planet, but the X mixes that were done by K7 that had, I think there was 10 of them, but you could get the VHS tape that had these like lo-fi, weird computer animated things that went with them. Like it was like a visual representation of the mix. The DJ Hell one, I still think is one of the best mixes that that ever did, that they ever did there. And, like, you can find the videos of it on YouTube, and it's like, you watch it, and it's like, I don't know if you ever saw Beyond the Mind's Eye, or, like, these weird things that were done by, I can't remember, like, it's like Hans Zimmer or some shit like this. But it's like, the visuals don't match. You know, we all think of, like, visuals today as, like, they all have to be synced up with the beat and blah, blah, blah. Fuck that. This was just somebody that spent, like, they spent probably hours and hours of rendering time at a university somewhere to get like a teacup to float through the fucking air. And it was like, it's so, and it makes, it has nothing to do with the music, but it's just like psychedelic and weird. So there's a couple of those X mixes, the, the Dave Clark one, the, especially the DJ hell one. Um, there's one that's by Richie Houghton and John Aquaviva. That's really, really good. And oddly enough, the, the very first one, which blows people's minds. It's Paul Van Dyke. It's actually really, really good. Whoa! So those put up on that one. Yeah, that, I'm chopping that. I'm yeah. chopping that out and putting this up as a clip. <laughs> Eric Cloutier, no, dude, Paul dude, Van Dyke. that, yeah. that, those, but those X mixes are fucking brilliant. Um, God, what else was a really good one? Like a good. Uh, there's a Claude Young DJ kicks that is still like pretty legendary. Um, Oh God! Going back to these X mixes, I think there's a hard floor one that's all acid house. That's like absolutely killer. There's there's ten of them, and they're all so so good. Um, what other good mix CDs are there? Do you know what? I hate to say it, and it still makes me happy. And you know, I'm not like a connoisseur in the best of sense when it comes to like drum and bass, but there was a DJ Dara. Uh, when it was like the whole Planet of the Drums era, uh, that was really, really, I think it was called Artificial Intelligence, or maybe that was Diesel Boy. You're, you've just name checked the two names that were the biggest US drum and bass guys who basically no one in the UK has ever heard of. It's funny, but those guys were huge, right? Well, but there's also, because when I was living in, in New York and I was working at Turntable Lab, right around the corner was Breakbeat Etiquette, which was DJ DB's. Uh, store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he had yep. a couple of those uh, mixes that were actually pretty good as well. Um, and you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna. This is gonna be the one that you can meme into infinity. 
one of my guilty pleasures, and it's still one of the stupidest but most fun mixes I think I've ever heard, is uh, Shut the Fuck Up and Dance by Richard Humpty Vision. <laughs> just because it's so, like, talking about that whole hard house thing. Man, if I ever need to clean the flat, like, really, really fast, it just makes me laugh every time because it's so, so stupid. But it's so entertaining. Um. Yeah, I think that's my embarrassing swath of, uh, <laughs> of mixy. Nice. Well, yeah, this has been awesome, mate. Thanks so much for doing it. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man, I appreciate it. It's been really, really fun. That was Eric Cloutier and a really enjoyable conversation. I mentioned at the top that we know each other socially and have done for a long time. And those conversations are sometimes slightly different, but we definitely got into some good, solid, meaty topics there didn't pull any punches so I got a lot out of that it's often the case that even the people that I know in fact almost more the people that I think I know or the people that I do know socially I learn more about that person during the course of doing one of these episodes and maybe that's an obvious thing maybe that's to be expected I don't know but it was a lot of fun and really really interesting actually Eric has thought about a lot of these topics really deeply and you can hear it in his opinions and his contributions to them and I loved the mix series that he did during lockdown it's just awesome I've been going back to those mixes this week and they're great so there is a link in the show notes to that project which you should definitely check out if you haven't done already okay we're done here like I said Hot Flush 20 is happening hf20.news head over there and check out all the stuff that's going on I hope you've taken a listen to Opposites the single in collab with Distance and make sure you check out the mix when it comes out on Friday Hot Flush Origins I will be posting a link to that on that website hf20.news when it's up so yeah we're done done for another week you can support us on Patreon, as you know, patreon.com slash official. If you don't want to, if you can't do that, it's cool. Leave us a review or a rating. Follow the Spotify playlist. There's a link in the show notes. Watch the music that we talk about. And join us in the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash discords. And I will see you back here, same time, same place, for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.